This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good evening and welcome to Plato's Cave, a film criticism show here on 3RRR, 102.7 FM. My name is Thomas Caldwell. I am one of the hosts of Plato's Cave. I'm joined tonight by Cerise Howard and our guest host from the past few weeks, Alexandra Heller Nicholas. Good evening to you both. Hi, hi. Evening, Thomas. <laughs> and we should say, Josh Nelson is normally the fourth member of the team. He's in the air somewhere. Uh, he's on a plane coming back from Brisbane. Both Josh and I went to uh, the opening of David Lynch Between Two Worlds, the exhibition up in Queensland. And you're not going to gloat about that. I'm, I'm not going to say anything more about that. I'm not going to mention the fact that for one hour I was in the same room as David Lynch. I'm going to move on now. Uh, in fact, there may be a Max Headroom special coming up in a week or two where I talk at length about what David Lynch Lynch told the audience and what the exhibition's all about. Yeah, that might be happening. Let's say it is. <laughs> Let's focus on our show tonight, though. Uh, another eclectic show. We're going to begin looking at a DVD release from earlier this year, the Danish coming-of-age horror film When Animals Dream. Uh, we're then going to examine the relationship drama The Disappearance of Eleanor Rigby, a film that exists in three different versions, two of which you can access digitally and one that's currently on a limited release theatrically and hopefully during our discussion we'll shed some light on how all that works how these films all fit together and finally we'll take a look at the new film directed by and co-starring uh, tommy lee jones that will be the revisionist western the horseman but first uh homesman. the homesman i keep doing that it's <laughs> it's uh yes the, the, the homesman uh but first let's take a look at when animals dream well when animals dream is uh, a danish horror film directed by jonas alex Arnby. Uh, he was Lars von Trier's... Uh, he worked in Lars von Trier's art department on both Breaking the Waves and Dancer in the Dark. And he's branched out to do his own thing, his own strange Danish thing, as they like to do. Um, the plot's pretty straightforward. It follows a 16-year-old teenage girl called Marie who lives in a Danish fishing village. She's going through some changes. Um, she's just started a job at a fish processing plant and is contending with boy-girl dramas, the politics thereof, I believe, are familiar to many teenagers of the same age. Um, on top of that, her mother's in a drug-induced state of catatonia. Uh, she looks after her mother with her father, who's played by Lars Mikkelsen from The Killing, also brother of Mads, hmm. point of interest. <laughs> ah, yeah, OK. That, Mads' that, brother. That examines the slight resemblance. The... the, the the Mickelson lads, they look alike. Yeah, they're doing all right, those guys, yeah, aren't they? Yeah, they're not, they're not too shabby. <laughs> not too shabby. On top of all of this, Marie's also turning into a werewolf. Tough times in regional Denmark. Um, this is a really sad and beautiful film. The werewolf, the use, I guess, of the werewolf trope is not particularly complex. Uh, it provides a primal out for a teenage girl growing into a sexually active, desirable and desiring young woman. Um, but in a culture that's not really at home to such things, doesn't really provide a language for young women learning to juggle these things. In the film, werewolfism... Is that a word, werewolfism? A lycanthropy. <laughs> <laughs> Look at the werewolf expert. <laughs> Ooh la la. No, I, think, I think that is right, yes. Um, <laughs> it's hereditary, and it comes down through the uh, maternal lines, 
this is pretty much at the heart of the film. She Marie inherits this from her mother, Sonia Richter, uh, who's also in The Homesman. Um, she pops up in two of the films that we watched this week. She's an amazing, amazing actor. Um, and I like this idea of, of lycanthropy being a, a, a kind of female curse, if you will. I guess that's not. this isn't the first film to really tackle that, but it really provides a nice generic language for women to talk about women being given the option of being either passion crazed monsters Mm. or repressed to the point of catatonia that these are the these are the options that you're given Uh, so marie's not really only contending with the changes in her own body she's also trying to find her place in this kind of um female history i guess it's quite literally in her family genes a lot of the critical treatment of this film's um tied it in quite explicitly uh to two films ginger snaps and let the right one in. I have to say, I don't think it's fair on the film to really overcook the let the right one in comparisons. It's from Scandinavia. It's a horror film. Do you think that's more, though, to do with the mood and the atmosphere? That's why I thought people were making that yeah, comparison. Yeah, I mean, it, it uses a, horror, a really familiar horror trope to talk about adolescent changes. Yeah. Um, and I think that, that it shares that. But what I mean more, I think, is Thomas uh, Alfredson was already a really established director when he did let the right one in. This for Arnby is a first film. And also Let the Right One In was a, um, I mean, that was a bestseller yeah. before he yep. made it. And this, you know, Arnby, uh, I believe Arnby wrote this as well. So we have to perhaps take that a little a little bit carefully, how readily we compare it to Let the Right One In. Ginger Snaps, on the other hand, I think is a really useful point of entry for um, When Animals Dream because it's a focus on teen, teenage girls as misanthropic lycanthropes. Lycanthropes? Lycanthropes. Yeah, lycanthropes. Tomato, tomato. Misanthropic lycanthropes. That is such a good band name. That is a good band oh, name. <laughs> can I play the tambourine in the misanthropic... I, I, you have to roll your eyes. Misanthropic. Growl. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Ginger Snaps, though, I think at its heart is about the connection between two female characters. It's a literal sisterhood. Mm. When Animal Dreams deviates quite substantially because I think it focuses quite explicitly on Marie's isolation. Um, And in that sense, I think it's a much, much bleaker film. Does that mean it's a better horror film, however? I'm not so sure. Um, This film, for me, has all the markings of a first-time director. But I, I really don't regret seeing it. I think it's a really solid, really fun, really interesting horror film um, that promises better things, I think, from the director. I think um, I... Yeah, I, yeah I, it's I, I, I kind of agree wholeheartedly with that. I really, really like this film, and I thought, what a fantastic debut. I can't wait to see more. It probably doesn't reach the true heights of what this genre is capable of, but it's certainly on the way and it's certainly worth watching. Um, Look, I think the Ginger Snaps comparison is unavoidable and that kind of werewolf transformation as embodying all the the fears the patriarchy has about the adolescent female body is is used so well in both films in quite a different way. I mean, Ginger Snaps is a great kind of punky, gory, black comedy where this is played, I think, very, very straight and, Mm. and, and serious and there's a real melancholy and sadness that isolation is really quite profound i mean i don't think there are any other female characters in it other than marie and her mother it's a real male dominated society and we meet lots of different versions 
of, of, of men. There's the very paternal father. We're not too sure what his deal is. There's the kind of best friend she meets at work. There's the aggressive kind of bully she meets at work. And there's a potential love interest. And I like the way the film kept you on your toes about how it was going to position all these people. Um, oh, do you know, there is one other female character, another female co-worker who automatically sides with the men. She's very much that embodiment of the woman who, who embraces patriarchy and kind of turns against her own. Yeah, look, I, I love the way it played out, the way the different men responded. Like, the majority of them do become pack animals themselves in horror and fear of what Marie will, will do, and there's only a handful who who side with her and, and, and support her. Um, you know, the way it plays out is, is, is kind of satisfying to a point from a thematic point of view, even maybe it's not from you wanting your your generic bloodlust to be satisfied, but I still have an enormous amount of time for a film that I think is very, very, uh, very, very smart. Yeah, you mentioned a, a word there, Thomas, that's really key for me with this film, and that's the B word, it's bully. This is almost a... You, know, you could remove all of the horror elements from it and this would still play out quite effectively as a bullying kitchen sinker. It's... Uh, I mean, the, as soon as she enters the workplace, she's subjected to all manner of humiliating, hazing rituals. That's what they seem like at first until mm. we really grasp the supernatural and elements. And the tribal thing again isn't it yeah. yeah yeah and uh it seems like there's there's no one who's going to, to defend her um we learn that's not quite the case but it's uh yeah it's a tough gig i mean it's never going to be a glamorous job and it, it, get that real sense that the only future for a young girl growing up in that environment is to be sent off to the uh, fish packing plant uh, to learn to to gullet a fish you learn one skill you probably learn that on your first day um and then that that's about it and you get a sense that it's such a dead-end job it's a dead-end town uh, if anything, uh, becoming a, a werewolf and perhaps um, uh, attacking some of your colleagues and uh, other locals mightn't be the worst thing that could possibly happen. Anything to get out of the, the incredible dreariness of that environment. It's so oppressive. Um, and, yeah, when you, you mentioned these sort of teen dramas and the, the sense, too, of attaching the the horror to the, the feminine and, and burgeoning sexuality and so on. Of course, I always think back to Carrie, which is, for me, the key film. Ground Zero. Yeah, it is sort of Ground Zero. Perfect point of reference mm. for this film, yes. Yeah. Definitely. Um, and, you know, this isn't quite up there with, with Brian De Palma uh, hitting his straps, but, look, it is a really moody, atmospheric film, which uh, kept me uneasy for its full runtime. One of the strengths, I think, I mean, we're talking a lot about a lot about male and female um, but Cerise you just touched on that idea of feminine as well and I think that's why the father is such a fascinating character because he fluctuates between this masculine and feminine um, he's a really fascinating character to me um, oh. because he's he's very much part of the male tribe mm. but he deviates and there's another significant male f- character as well who does the same thing so this p- film really plays with drawing lines between male and feminine and masculine and uh sorry male and female and masculine and feminine in a really interesting way yeah and sort of where do your allegiances fall i mean i found the father really yeah beautiful uh, fascinating character as well because he you know on the one hand he's being pulled by the town's vogue and that's the very masculine um i think it is i think this film it is more useful to talk about masculinity and femininity as opposed to men and women because i think there are some men you can definitely put in the femininity camp and vice versa yeah so he's very much drawn to the masculine packed behavior of the townsfolk or work in this this big industrial fish factory but at the same time you know he wants to i think genuinely protect his family you don't get a sense of ownership of him over his women it's not sort of you know the, the tony abbott owning his women saying i'm there for a feminist deal it's actually a man who i think deeply cares for his wife 
wife and daughter and perhaps regrets how he was uh, coerced into treating his wife and, and you know he maybe and now he's torn about do I do the same thing towards my daughter or do I try to give her a, a better life so yeah that was that was interesting it was actually quite a positive positive message about the family unit um, which I which I found fascinating yeah there's something of the western in this as well you could imagine too um, uh, just a family under siege out in the, the wild west where the, the the lynch mob is easily roused to action uh, either sort of piecemeal or all together the whole township um, taking it out on the one uh, people to exhibit otherness in their um, neck of the woods. So, you know, I, I see a few different generic tropes in this film, I, I fancy. I like that a lot when we think about Sonia Richter being in both The Homesman, which we'll talk about shortly, mm. and being in this film and being this kind of out-of-control, under-control woman in a frontier environment. It's a really fascinating... Um, there's a really fascinating overlap, I think, between the two roles that she plays in each of these films that were kind of accidentally brought together tonight. But I think they make a nice little set if you're a if you're a Sonia Richter fan. <laughs> yeah, well, look, and pri- prior to planning this show, I don't think any of us have made that connection. So there we go. We did find a connection between these seemingly disparate films. So that's when we'll talk about the Homesman. I'll even refer to it as the Homesman rather than the Horseman when we get to it later on the show. <laughs> Three, triple, ah. Okay, before we get into talking about this film, let's just explain how it all works. So The Disappearance of Eleanor Rigby was originally made as two films, Him and Her, that they were screened this way at various festivals. The idea is one film showed the point of view of the lead male character, the other film showed the same events but from the point of view of the lead female character. Uh, This all happened in late 2013 and then last year the production... the the big powerful distributors who had this film in America asked the writer-director to edit both films into one film. And that's called The Disappearance of Eleanor Rigby Them. There's various reasons for this. One was to make it more commercial. But it was basically to make it more commercially viable. You know, cinemas would play one film rather than two. Also, having it as one film made it eligible for the Academy Awards, which ended up not making a difference anyway because it didn't receive any nominations. Um, So The Disappearance of Eleanor Rigby Them is currently screening at the Sun Theatre at in Yarraville, but Australian distributors Transmission Films have also now made the original films Him and Her available uh, digitally, so you can get that at a really reasonable price. There's no reason to get these films illegally. It's very affordable to get them via iTunes and other digital platforms. I hope that all makes sense, but Cerise, let's now... And actually, Cerise is going to sort of introduce us now to the disappearance of Eleanor Rigby, them. Cerise, you've only seen them. I've only seen him, then her. Alex, you've seen her, then him, and them. So no, I saw him, then her. <laughs> okay, I got that wrong. I saw the same as you, plus them on the end. Oh, okay, so you've seen him, her, and them. You've seen all of them. I've seen the two original ones. Cerise has seen the cut. I have. Um, yes, so from director Ned Benson, um, feature debut, James McAvoy and Jessica Chastain are a couple, seemingly at the outset, a very loving couple. Life must be just dandy, even if they do need to do a runner from a restaurant, but that all seems to be fun. That's what zany young people do. Yeah, it's all larks. They're having a great old time, um, reinforced by the fireflies that zip about them in the park as they roll around laughing uh, at the successful jape they have perpetrated. <laughs> and, Crime, tra-la-la. Uh, yeah. However, 
However, before terribly, terribly long, we gather that not everything is totally peachy because she, uh, Elle, Eleanor, Eleanor Rigby, uh, rides a bike onto a bridge in New York City and promptly jumps into the river. So I suppose it's probably the Hudson, I guess. Um, why'd she do this? Uh, you know, it's going to take a little while for us to find out. We might surmise a few things. We're going to have clues dropped to us at regular intervals. Uh, we are going to come to grasp that while this film is called The Disappearance of Eleanor Rigby, the film is not so much haunted by the disappearance of a lead character, and this really refers to her disappearing from the life of her partner, uh, but rather from something else that just uh, haunts it, another uh, disappearance, um, which it takes its sweet time in coming to the fore, though I don't know if that's the case in the other films, which I suspect might take a totally different narrative approach. And in fact, yeah, I think they the must, other films, it takes... Yeah, it doesn't tell you directly. It takes a while for you to figure it out. Yeah. And never directly, but it, it's... It, you get the sense of what's going on fairly quickly, I, I think. Yeah. So, I mean, in them, Eleanor holds up in her parents' place, the family home, a lovely wasp palace somewhere in, I suppose, the suburbs, or maybe even a little way out of New York City centre. I get the sense it's a bit of a commute. Um, we see her in her room a bit where, very tellingly, we... Uh, see quite often the poster of a Claude Lelouch film from 1966, A Man and a Woman, and I expect that must be quite significant. Uh, it is a film starring Anouk Camille and Jean-Louis Trintignant. I have not seen this film, but understand it to be about a, uh, an affair that perhaps never quite hits its stride because of some memory that troubles at least one of the protagonists. But uh, can too much be made of that connection? I'm not sure, but it, this film really goes to great pains to make sure we see that in <laughs> shot really quite often. And uh, throughout the film, various characters too uh, muse about uh, things concerning the past and their influence upon the present, not least uh, a lecture, a jaded lecturer whom um, Eleanor ends up taking a class with and becomes good friends in spite of the lecturer's initial suspicion of her motives, uh, knowing full well that her uh, influential father, or at least influential in academia, has pulled a string or two to plant his uh, troubled wayward daughter in her class uh, Eleanor's mother played by Isabelle Huppert with her French accent in full swing, I don't know if she could turn it off even if she wanted to, I've never heard her in an English film without the accent, I know we have at least one fan of that accent here and I love probably three fans of Huppert herself <laughs> The character is French in the film Yes she is, yeah, so it is na la. narratively correct um, but yes, her, even her mother takes goes to some pains at some point to relate an early childhood episode to her. In fact, so does her father later on, played by William Hurt. So, um, yeah, it, this is uh, very much a film uh, about the past haunting the present and, you know, reinforced by a slightly gloomy soundtrack throughout, some slightly dark cinematography and a few tantrums by various cast members, which also include uh, Bill Hader as Stuart, a chef who's probably not quite peaked yet. In fact, everyone here is generally just sort of searching for meaning. Parents are troubled, children are troubled. Everyone is just a little bit troubled. I was troubled. Yeah, okay, yeah. go on. Do, do, do you want to talk about your lack of trouble before my trouble? <laughs> I, I was actually puzzled as to what the ages of the character were, were actually for a while. Um, but they do say in there, I think, don't they, that the early I 30s? I think just early 30s. 30s. Oh, okay, yeah. okay. Um, I, look, I love the elegance. I haven't seen them, which is the recut. I've only seen the two original versions, him and her, in that order. And I absolutely adored both films. Yeah, and can you... 
yeah. begin by just saying, do, do they tell their narrative in a linear fashion like them? Her does a few flashbacks. Him is lineal. Her does a couple of flashbacks, which you aren't expecting either, actually. You think it's moved on. Uh-huh. Um, Thankfully, she has a haircut, though, so it makes it real easy to follow. It which does, is although, a flashback and which isn't. Although, interestingly, they, and, and, and both films kind of fill in the gaps from the other, but not in an obvious way. I, I don't think they ever do the obvious thing. Like, you don't see the scene where she gets a haircut and get a makeover, um, which would have been a really easy scene to mm-hmm. do, to sort of say, look at the symbolism of her moving on. Uh, so both films feel like they're filling in the gaps for each other. Uh, both characters play a minor part in each other's film. He's sort of an intrusive presence in her film. She's kind of a welcoming, almost ephemeral presence in his film, and I think that reflects the way they feel about each other. Most interestingly, though, is the few handful of scenes where they are together on screen play out differently in each film. So this is what troubles me about them, that they, the whole point of these two films originally, I think, is to show us that incredible subjectivity when it comes to, to life and love and relationships and, and tragedy. Um, so often these very pivotal scenes, we see that each character perceives or remembers them ever so slightly different in a way that privileges themselves so in them they obviously had to choose one over the other which seems to me to defeat the purpose i'm really curious alex to know what you think of all this because you've seen the original films and the re-edit that cerisa's seen well i found it interesting chatting to you before we came on air because i i was of the assumption that i'd watched these the wrong way around i'd, I'd looked online and it had said no no there's no correct way to watch them but both miff and i believe at toronto where it premiered i believe that they played her and then him. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, bel- I think that you told me to watch her and him, but I can't quite remember. No, no, I, well, I said him and um, her because Okay, I, maybe that's why I did. I watched it that way by... And I, I did a bit of research, and mm-hmm. both the director and Jessica Chastain recommended that's the way to watch them. Oh, that's them. interesting. And but they both mm. then specify there is no correct way. Right. Interestingly, uh, the director and Jessica Chastain were in a relationship until about 2010. Yeah. That would be the missing part of the puzzle for me that yep. I needed. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, okay. A lot of sense. Look, I started with him, and I, I do have to say I thought James McAvoy was really strong, really great performance from him. It was meant to be Joel Edgerton, I think, to begin with. He was originally cast. Thank God. I mean, yeah, no, that would have been I like a bit, Joel Edgerton, but... I can't imagine that at all. No. I, I thought McAvoy was perfect in this role. Yeah. That being said, I found him absolutely tedious. Mm. Um, it Without her, it for, for me, it had no context. Um, the repressed trauma that is so central to the film just kicked in too late for me to really have any interest or compassion for either of the characters. I just found it meandering and vague. Um, there And there were a couple of hiccups in there that just really bruised me. There are lines like, you're mm. the star of my life story. And my favourite, we live in a world full of probablys. Oh, I've got another I mean, one to add to that. Please I, do. I feel like we're living some dreadful disaster cliché. Ad- uh, okay, s- stop it. <laughs> I adore you guys, but I'm going to smash a bottle. <laughs> like, um, I mean, this is, the, this is the work of a first-time director and the conceptual bravado all the conceptual bravado in the world can't disguise that. I mean, those kind of lines made it really difficult for me to move on. But don't you think those are lines true to the characters who probably don't have as much life experience as they think and they are a bit hokey? I mean, I read that as as ways of showing us that these characters are a little bit hokey and don't have the grasp on reality that, that, that they, they think they do. Well, that's interesting because in her they didn't bother me. When those kind of lines appeared in her, they weren't a problem for me, but when they appeared in him, they were. See, I suspect that's deliberate. Um I just was so bored. I just, I was just so okay. bored with with him. Honestly, at best, I felt that it was. Uh, I think a lot of the 
um, I mean, you've mentioned um, a man and a woman and the heavy referencing to a man and a woman. But, the, I mean, Benson certainly wears his love of uh, Bergman's scent from a marriage on his sleeve. Yeah. I mean, at times the Bergman fanboyism would make Richard Ayoade blush. It's too much. <laughs> it was just a bit too much for me. Um, and I do think that, I don't want to give away any spoilers, but I think that in terms of that central trauma, I think that there have been other recent films that do it much better. Mm. Um, I don't want to say what they, those films are because that will give away what the trauma is. This all being said, Her really changed my mind. I thought Her was such a strong film. I don't know why Her wasn't nominated for an Oscar. It, 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 should, have, it should have been a contender. Yeah. Mm. I mean, it was so powerful. Um, the only fault that I could find with Her at all was that it just lacked McAvoy. Uh, he just wasn't in it enough, and that would have been the only... I, I thought it was sensitive and warm and compassionate, all the things that I felt were really absent. And at the end of the day, I really felt that um, him felt like a really high-quality feature-length DVD extra to her. Um, I just... I, I really did a, a, a full reversal of my opinion of these films by the time I watched her. So would you say that... You almost think her is fine on its own as a film. It doesn't yeah, need him. Huh, I, I would say if you, if you were going to yeah. watch one of these films, if you're a busy person with things to do <laughs> and you want to watch a film with Eleanor Rigby in the title that isn't about the Beatles and doesn't really talk about the Beatles that much, I would go with her. That's interesting. Um, I loved watching both. And I'm really glad I had a day between. Like I think watching them both back-to-back would have been would have wore me down, mm-hmm. but I really enjoyed watching him enjoying it and then watching her taking it to oh, the next level. Oh, that's interesting, because I did watch them back-to-back, so maybe I just had okay. f- um, formal novelty fatigue. Yeah. And I did find that the novelty was formal. I think that there's a lot of conceptual bravado driving Benson uh, through this project, which maybe comes with being a, an early career filmmaker. Yeah. Um, but, I, I, it, I mean, I think it's been done better before. The 1973 TV movie Twin Set with... Uh, Liz Taylor and Richard Burton divorce, divorce his and divorce hers yeah. pretty much does the same thing. So this isn't new what he's been doing here. And well, there's more than shades of Rashomon in the whole oh, absolutely. thing as well. Mm. Oh, yeah, I mean, this has been done yeah. before, for, 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 for sure. But, but just not in such a protracted sort of way, you could say. I mean, two feature-length films, each over two hours, and then the, this super mix. No, he was only of, about... He was about no, they're not over two hours. Oh, him, him's about 90 minutes, and I think her is... About 210, I think, from memory. M- maybe 100, yeah. Mm. Yeah, okay. But combine them. And then them is a bit over two hours, yeah. so that they, they cut a bit of, bit out. But Is there anything yeah. in them that's not in the other two? No. no not, I no mean, look, I only saw it once, but... Um, so, yeah, so on what was it like then watching them? Really depressing, okay. to be honest, because it, it, uh, it cut a lot of the really interesting scenes in half. It, it really sort of deleted the nuance and the ambiguities between the two it very much cut off its nose to spite its face it it was almost like the the decision to blend the films into one didn't have the faith in the in the formal conceit of the project that they couldn't stand alone Uh, i found it very cynical um, and well, kind of depressing to watch, mar- to be honest. It sounds like it was a marketing exercise, yeah. reading between the lines in press releases Which and interviews. may have been imposed upon the director. Oh, I think it yeah. was. I don't yeah. think... I mean, it really feels like the, you know, the whole concept of the film was dependent on this two-film structure. I mean, I don't think it's a novelty. I mean, whether we agree it worked or not is a different mm. question, but I don't think it's a novelty. I think uh, the, the, the format is, is what makes the themes of these films uh, relevant and resonate. Yeah, and I think it's very directly hooked into the um, to the thematic concerns of the film um, about mm. you know experience and and trauma 
and how do you work those things into a relationship mm. um, that that subjectivity becomes really crucial i ultimately i think that there's a lot of brouhaha at the moment about ned ned benson being this great new talent i'm not convinced okay. i don't think he's rubbish mm-hmm. but i do it's I, I was watching it uh him being in a relationship with chastain makes a lot of sense because i was watching it thinking where does the promotional heat for this film come from like you know this is a first-time filmmaker I where think is she this wound up from? a producer eventually right yeah. um that being said i really want to flag Christina Bowden, who is the editor on this project, she's uh, been around a long time. She worked on Carlito's Way. She has a lot of experience. Well, you've tied De Palma into this film I, as well. Yeah. I was bringing De Palma everywhere. He lives in my pocket. He's, he's always with me. And with me. <laughs> Let's have a moment of silence and remember De Palma. <laughs> um, she's, I mean, she's remarkable. She's a remarkably talented editor, and I think mm. that the success of this film... I know that I sound quite negative, but I do think there are successes to it, uh, to this project. I think is they they're very much to her credit as much as they are to Benson's yeah, as director. Only there'd been a script editor on there too, just to get rid of some of that preciousness mm. and verbosity and and hokiness, because that would have made all the difference. I think. This is the disappearance of Eleanor Rigby. I think we've had three slightly different skews as is apt. on that, as is apt. Yeah, yeah exactly. It, 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 keeping in the spirit of the films, we all have a slightly different subjective feeling towards them. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. You're listening to Plato's Cave with Alex Cerise and Thomas. We're now going to turn our attention to The Homesman. This is the second film directed by American actor Tommy Lee Jones after the three burials of Milquides Estrada. That was a 2005 film that was it was sort of a contemporary western and explored issues of race, uh, in particular the hostility towards Mexicans from US Border Patrol officers and the police in Texas. Have either of you seen that? Nope. It's no. a really strong film. And Jones doesn't pull any punches. It's a very progressive film, but a very angry film. Uh, The Homesman is a more traditional Western, at least in terms of time and location, as it's set in the American Midwest in the 1850s. Uh, However, I think it deviates strongly from many of the other established generic conventions of the Western um, in a way that I really haven't seen or encountered before. I mean, there's been loads of filmmakers who have deconstructed the mythology of the Western, you know, from Sergio Leone, Sam Peckinpah, more recently Jim Jarmusch and even uh, Kelly Reichardt. But even directors like Howard Hawks and John Ford and Clint Eastwood sort of have done revisionist Westerns challenging the mythology. But The Homesman just contains an unrelenting harshness that paints an extremely bitter depiction of the American West. There's no heroes in this film. There aren't even any lovable anti-heroes. Uh, you're not going to get exciting shootouts. There's no scenes of. There's no lyrical scenes of noble martyrdom. So if Jones was looking at troubling uh, attitudes connected to race in the three burials, in the Homesman, his attention is on gender, specifically the incredibly raw deal women received while in the company of men who are supposedly off taming the frontier. <laughs> The film concerns three women who have been brought from their homes in the East to live with their husbands in the West. All three women have become extremely mentally ill from their experiences. One lost all her children to diphtheria. One is repeatedly raped by her husband who wants her to have his son. And and the third woman um, 
it's a bit more ambiguous what's happened to her, but it's sort of she's, it hints that she's so overcome with the death and disease around her that she has resorted to killing her own children, or at least a child. Um, in a scene that I still sometimes close my eyes and then see, it's it's mm, really. Absolutely. I'm not even sure I like the fact that scene is so blatantly in, in the film. It's really distressing. Um, now, the various men in the community turn out to be pretty much useless in caring for these women. So a woman named Mary B. Cuddy, played by Hilary Swank. We haven't, I am not aware of seeing her for an awfully long time on screen, which is a shame. But her character in this film accepts the task of taking the women back home to the east. She is an independently wealthy woman. She's a landowner, but she's also single, and she's very much aware that marriage in this world is a business transaction, and it's going to be to her advantage to get married. Um, It's a pragmatic decision, but she's repeatedly told in this film that she's too plain... And she's too bossy, uh, which is just code for the fact that she's she's smart and doesn't take any shit and she's independent. Um, there's also hints throughout the film that she might be on, on that slope of losing her mind as well. Uh, she saves a guy called George Briggs, played by Tommy Lee Jones, uh, saves him from a lynching, in fact, and pays him to accompany her. So it's Mary and George's journey with the three women... And this is not a rollicking adventure where they all end up as best friends. I don't think there's any spoiler here. There's no miraculous cures happening in this film. Instead, we have all sorts of hints at the horrible... Not hints, blatant reminders of what was really going on in America. We see the hostility towards... Native Americans. We see black slaves in chains. The unacknowledged class divisions are, are explored in this film. But look, most importantly, the, the lack of hope or opportunity for women. Even a woman as remarkable and strong as, as, as Mary. Um, and yet the women are still all blamed for the ones bringing the misfortune to the men. And there's just so many images of dead children throughout this film. I was really quite moved and upset and impressed by this film. I think it's quite a profound feminist work. I think that Tommy Lee Jones has crafted a really solid Western, full stop. I mean, it's mm. a really, really solid genre film. Um, so you disagree with me saying that it I'm, I'm, moves away from some of the generic conventions? It, it plays with them, but okay. I think, I mean, how long have revisionist Westerns been around? Can we can we even reach a point where we can say revisionism is now a generic trope of the Western? Yeah, that's um, a good call. I mean, yep. I can't remember the last non-revisionist Western I saw. Well, that would have been that Is recent a, uh, Iranian-American uh, vampire western. That oh, was very, a girl walks home. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> No, um, that's a really good point. Yeah, I mean... Deconstructing it, the Western is the new Western. It is, mm. um, which is not to dismiss it at all. But what I like, what I think is the strength that Tommy Lee Jones really has here, it's almost his superpower, is that he just has an intuitive understanding of the mechanics of how the Western works. And that's visible in every frame. Uh, he really gets it. I would also say that this film is as much about cinematography as it is about anything else. I found this such a beautiful film to look at. Um, and I've I've always had a feeling that perhaps more than any genre, maybe the musical, but maybe the musical, but the Western is, is so much about how it looks. Um, they, they're just such beautiful, beautiful films. And this film is just exquisite to watch. It's Rodrigo Prieto, who was the cinematographer. He did Wall of uh, Wall Street, Brokeback Mountain, and Frida with Julie Taymor, and I think it's up there with some of his best works. It's an exquisite-looking movie. Um, but we don't want to talk about pretty pictures. We're here to talk about the pain. The pretty pictures pain. are legitimate as anything. <laughs> but there's a lot of pain. Let's talk about the pain. Um, 
the relationship between uh, Swank and Jones on screen, I think he's absolutely electric. Swank is just in top form. There's a that perfect balance that she has between strength and weakness, determination and frailty that really marks some of her best work is here centre stage. It's quite exquisite. Uh, I want to give props too also to the demented cargo, the three women that, that, that play the... The, the troublesome ladies that need to be transported, Grace Gunner, Miranda Otto and Sonia Richter again, who we've recently spoken about, they all put in just incredible performances who in, in their own way are kind of foundational to, to how the film works. Um, this all being said, I'm going to put on my feminist killjoy hat because that's why I'm here. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not with anything to do with the film itself. I, I think it's quite a, a remarkable film and a really fascinating film. But a lot of the critical discourse around this film is has been quite interesting to me. My feeling is that a film that tackles feminist issues doesn't necessarily earn the right to be called quote-unquote feminist per se. I, I don't think they're the same thing. I don't know whether it's helpful to our brains as individuals or for our culture more generally to slot things into these kind of binaries. You know, is it progressive or is it regressive? Um, is it feminist or isn't it feminist? Um, I... I definitely don't want to under underplay the fact that this film is looking at a really important overlooked aspect of the experience of 19th century frontier women. I think it does so in a way that is really warm. It does it in a way that is sincere. And perhaps most importantly, it does it in a way that's never patronising. But when we start throwing around phrases like feminist Western, I think we, we start ignoring some of the, the way some of the things that happen in this film. It's, it's not a woman's story. It starts off as a woman's story. But at, at the end of the day, this is a film about a man learning about an aspect of the world by seeing a woman's experience. This is a man's film to me. It starts off as a woman's film, but I think it's a, a story about a man. That's a mm. hell of a good point. Well, also, of course, uh, three of the other principal women characters in this film barely utter a peep. Um, their madness has driven them into a state of catatonia, which, uh, as my dear friend Melody, whom I saw this film with yesterday, pointed out to me, is, is very improbable that three people suffering some sort of mental illness should all exhibit much the same symptoms. I think that's a very, very good point, because, look, madness is not a, um, a something people have in common in as much as that they might experience it. Similarly, yet these three are, are very, very... Very similar, and, and in fact, they almost seem to sort of band together in a way, uh, in, in a quite placid sort of way. It's just it's a bit bit weird, um, and I think it's actually a fairly thankless task for these actresses who, uh, you know, there's not a lot of dialogue, obviously, and, and being a, a catatonic, uh, troubled-looking, uh, ragged woman. Um, I, do, I do all right. Yeah, well, <laughs> and. Um, <laughs> Well, look, I think there are. Uh, I think it is worth actually mentioning something of the aesthetics of this again, not to overlook the pain, but where, where the, there are some extremely painful images to observe in this. Uh, there are a couple of just absolutely extraordinary uh, uh, scenes. Well, not even scenes; they're just shots. We very the camera doesn't linger on these moments, but two two particularly distressing images. I don't, can't really say what either of them were necessarily, for they are spoilers. They're, they're, they're the sort of thing that might be a background detail if you weren't paying attention but are, are significant narratively. Um, incredibly strong, um, very affecting. So I think that's Tom Lee Jones has an instinct there for that, um, understands that the most upsetting images are ones that you either don't see and, and make for yourself, as in with many horror films where the violence is kept off screen and you 
perhaps hear something and you do the math and you're horrified, or hear as you only catch them almost subliminally um, and and then are distressed. And, yeah, this is actually quite a, a distressing film for all of Tommy Lee Jones' abundant charisma, even when he's playing a bit of a down-and-out shambolic figure as he is here and doing nothing to make himself look uh, flattering, really, either. He's done... Didn't, certainly didn't ask a cinematographer friend to light him handsomely or make, do anything to, to make him look uh, the charismatic leading man type. Um, so, yeah, mad props to Tommy Lee. And his furrowed brow. He furrows them like the best, with the best, doesn't he? I, I really, I was debating whether I referred, whether I was going to refer to this as a feminist film or not, and I, I kind of wish I didn't. Um, <laughs> no, 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 no. no. Um, I, and part of the reason I was debating that is I'm never too sure whether I'm qualified to make that call or not. But I, I just, the way it had such a powerful effect on me is because it, it, it sort of seemed to expose the truth behind the reality of what would have been like for these women. They, they, you know, in the classical westerns, you think of the kind of dutiful housewife on the prairie waiting for a man to come home, um, and she stands by him regardless, and he's and he's sort of provided for, and she's a passive figure. And in this, we just see these 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 women obliterated and i think you've made a really good point that actually although the hillary swank character is the protagonist she isn't by the end of the film and that's that's an important point worth noting what i considered about that was that even within the context of say the film there was no room for a strong woman and i wonder if there was something meta and deliberate about that i mean it's the, the way that ha- happens within the film as well is unexpected and quite devastating and i think the final image of the film is so bitter and cynical about the tommy lee jones character i mean he's presented at first as he's going to be sort of the the, the, the lovable rogue and he's just so kind of pathetic he's and just a rogue i like yeah. your point though about yeah so the idea is he's the one who learns he's the one who sort of sees how tough it is for the for, for the women folk in the film i still think there's a real sting in the tail that says he might learn that but then he very quickly also forgets it so um not to get too sort of tied down in classifications i i really liked what you said about there's a difference between a film with feminist ideas and saying this is a feminist film that being said i i, I do think that this film belongs it, it's up there with some of the best westerns that tackle gender politics mm. i mean it you know the searches uh the searches the bravados yep quick and the dead i'll add mm. uh the yeah. tall, tall women Hanny Calder, I'm I'm going to be crazy and chucking bad girls. There are a lot mm-hmm. of westerns that explicitly deal with gender politics. I've gone blank. What's the Kelly Reichardt one? I, I mentioned that she's made a western. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, recent times where they're, they're gating about the countryside too on a, a fool's errand. And uh, what on earth was that? Following called? a man who's meant to be yeah, an expert yeah. in the country and he's got them all lost. Yes. And Michelle Michael Williams. Uh, that, uh, oh, that doesn't. Is that her name? Um, Michelle Williams. The Michelle type. Williams. Yeah, <laughs> But um, just while you look that up, Thomas, yeah. uh, it is a, a, one really interesting point for me um, linking into this is how, I mean, typically in the Western, um, perhaps true to life, and uh, women were chattel, they were property to be uh, exchanged by wealthy male landowners. And it is really interesting to me that this wealthy female landowner effectively, uh, in trying to strike a, a good pragmatic business deal, has to try to sell herself as as, as chattel too, and fails. Mm. You know, she keeps getting knocked back for being plain and bossy. And that's, that's really quite uh, distressing in its own right, that uh, even when she is empowered, she still has to resort to um, 
in, uh, trying to sell herself, and 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 that's a tough sell. It turns out the film we were trying to think of is Mix Cutoff. Yes, which I loved. I think it's yeah, a really it's really film. strong film. Um, yeah, you've got you've got me thinking now actually about. I think Tommy Lee Jones's intentions are so noble and so good in this film. But um, yeah, l- reflecting back, I was still disappointed that I suppose Hilary Swank's character didn't contain the agency all throughout the film that she started with. I think what happens with that character is really important to a point he's making, and I can kind of see the narrative bravado in that. But I was still a bit sad about the idea that, even though he's trying to do an overall picture of how devastating it all is, I still would have liked to have seen her contain the agency throughout and be a symbol of, of triumph to somehow rise rise above it. Or um, even for the story to just maintain its perspective from her point of view rather yeah. than from his. It's a very thin line. I really, I really like this film. I certainly, mm. I'm not saying that it's sexist or that it's regressive or anything like that. No, I think it's a but, very strong yeah. film about gender politics. Mm. I hesitate to call it a feminist film for reasons that I've just described, but in a way, maybe that's just a, uh, a branding issue. Almost, I think it's a remarkable film for tackling the things that it tackles. Yeah, I think there's always strength where there's ambivalence, because yeah. uh, <laughs> there's that tension, and then it gives you plenty to to chew over after the film and and uh, discuss. That's the Homesman. We've we've done very heavy films tonight on yeah, Plato's Misery Triple Play. Haven't <laughs> <laughs> I just realised dead children are a theme for? Yeah, I don't want to say too much, but yes, it's 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 been looming large in some of the films we've discussed. Uh, we found some intriguing links as well. We've talked about When Animals Dream. That's available right now on DVD or via various digital platforms, courtesy of Madman Entertainment. Uh, The Disappearance of Eleanor Rigby Them is released through Transmission Films. Now, that's screening at the Sun Theatre, or you can rent and buy the original films, him and her, digitally from iTunes or through Dendi Direct, uh, dendidirect.com.au. The Homesman is screening now at Cinema Nova through Madman Entertainment. If you want to get in touch with us and share your thoughts about what we've talked about or um, you know, you, you, if you've seen the films and you, you felt there's something brilliant that we may have missed, do get in touch. You can reach us on email at platoskfilm at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook at Plato's Cave Film, and we're there on Twitter as well. Plato's Cave Film, funnily enough. You've been listening to myself, Thomas Cordwell, along with Cerise Howard and Alexandra Heller-Nicholas. Uh, next week on the show, uh, Josh Nelson should be back with us, and we're going to look at the new Tim Burton film, Big Eyes. We're also going to look at Love is Strange and the DVD release of Finding Vivian Mayer. We all missed it last year when it was in the cinema, so now that it's arrived on DVD, we'll take a look at it. That's sort of a bit of an art theme next week. They should all tie in very nicely... Good night. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.